0: Welcome to Valley Church. If we haven't met before, my name's Michael. Um, we are working our way through the book of Matthew, and tonight we're going to be in chapter 22. If you've got Bibles, you can open up there, a familiar and great passage. Um, but before we dig in, I want to tell you something about myself. I love to explain things. I don't mean that I like love to be right or that I need to be in charge. I mean, I love attempting to take things that might be a little bit complicated or cloudy. I like to make sure that I understand them very well, and then figure out like a different way to explain or synthesize so that it makes sense to like whoever I'm talking to. I love the process of being taught something that is complicated and then coming to an understanding of it when I don't understand something and then someone explains it in a way that it just clicks and your brain is like, oh, I get it. I didn't understand it and now I do. I love that process. This has played out in my life particularly with my, like my family of origin, my brothers and my parents. Um where I'm usually the one to explain how games are played. Um, my family jokes that I do this so that I can like, adjust the rules to my benefit, that's just not true. Um, but I love figuring out like, what parts of games are confusing, like the goal of it, figuring out like, a different metaphor or analogy to help explain it, um, figuring out how to explain things in the right order so that you don't give people too much information at once and help things make sense. Anyways, I like explaining things. Um, I want things to be simplified, and synthesized into something that I can wrap my brain around and I love when I can bring that to other people and explain it. Um, the passage tonight is a synthesis of a lot of things. It is a reduction in complexity. It's an explanation and a summarization of the 39 books of the Old Testament, 613 laws and countless commands and encouragements and content in the Old Testament. All of it is boiled down into these two um, commandments, these statements that Jesus uh, gives us. And so Jesus is doing something here that I legitimately, despa- I feel like I desperately need it, which is a simplification of this thing we call following Jesus. I need Christianity for me to be simplified. I don't know about you, I could. this could be a thing that I think other people wrestle with, but maybe it's just me. If so, I'm about to talk about something that only I struggle with for a while, but um, I get overwhelmed by all of the Christian advice that there is out there in the world. If you wanna follow Jesus better or closer, you've got to do this. If you wanna grow as a disciple, you've got to do this. I feel like the overwhelm, the overwhelming feeling maybe kind of doubles up for me as a pastor because not only am I wondering these things for myself, but I'm like, should I be leading like my church and other Jesus followers to do these things? Um, can be overwhelming and I'm, I hope I don't sound too cynical here, I don't feel that way, but there's always something that's kind of trending, like a trending aspect of following Jesus. Whatever like the famous pastor of the day is teaching to his church or whatever, or writing books about, and then people are listening to it and paying attention to it, they're like, oh my word, this is it. This is what we have been missing. This is the key to following Jesus like we're really supposed to, and everyone else up until this moment has been missing out, and now we've found the right recipe that it takes to become more and more like Jesus. Well, don't get me wrong, I think there is a place for like seasonal unified church growth, and maybe even regional, like, like the church in America, it has, it has a vibe and there's a place for like prophetic pastors and people to speak into the things that maybe need to change. They touch on things that really resonate with us. So that's, that's legit and we can adjust and try new things together. But it, to me, it just feels like there's always something that we're missing and someone's kind of got the ticket and they know what to do. And that just feels exhausting to me, I don't know about you. Um, I can look back on like the last, I don't know, 10 years or so of my life and I can see like the, the trail and the trend of different like Christian influences and pastors on me. So these might not be yours, maybe they are. If they are, I wanna know if we have the same like trend. So first for me, it was Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill. So this was a while ago. Um, And the trend was like an an emphasis, a very strong emphasis on formation of doctrine through scriptures. And they did a lot of other things that were great and a lot of things that were not great, but that was the main thing that I gathered from that. That is the season where I say I actually fell in love with Jesus. Um, That was the emphasis, that was the trend. It's like you gotta know your Bible and that's gonna form you as a person if you just study it and read it well. And then for me, maybe this is unique to my role when I was in in ministry, but a guy named Andy Stanley. um, The emphasis was that churches need to become places that unchurched people want to go. And that was like all that I was thinking about, all that we were trying to do in ministry at that time. And then it was a guy named John Mark Comer. Many of you know that guy, pastor up in the Portland area. And the emphasis was that churches need to be spiritually formed through practices before they are like, Um, Ready to go out and be the kind of missional force in the world that we wanna be. And so we as a church, we focused on spiritual formation through different spiritual disciplines. And then it was a guy named Pete Scazzaro. And so our church, we read something called the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, focused on spiritual formation still, but like an emphasis on slowing down your inner life so that you can experience, meaningfully experience the presence of God daily. Um, For what it's worth, I think we're probably moving a little bit more towards like a, like high church liturgical traditional um expressions of following Jesus. People my age and younger are tired of church trying to be cool and relevant and seem to be wanting something a little more ancient and traditional and sacred. Um, anyways, that's just my two cents and you can remember that when it happens, you'd be like, wow, he knew. Um maybe it's already happening and it's like old news. I don't know. Um, that's my trail of like Christian influences that I could that I could point to, the trends of what a, what a guy has to do to really follow Jesus and, and nail it. And maybe you have your own. And I'll just add all of those things that I mentioned. Uh, good people, good pastors, and good content. They were leading churches, their churches in the way that God, I believe, wanted them to, inspired their churches towards following Jesus better. Um, so it's genuinely good stuff. But as I reflect on it, it just makes me tired when I think about it. I feel like I've bounced around from like, oh, this thing is the most important. No, now this thing is the most important. And now, now if you really wanna follow Jesus and understand the Christian life, you've gotta do this. Um, and the truth is that all of those things were right. Everything I mentioned were like good, good things that are still true. Um, and that's the thing that discourages me <laughs> because I can't do it all. We can't do every single thing that is recommended to us. Um, and then sometimes I feel like I don't even wanna try. Not that I wanna give up my faith in, my Jesus, in Jesus or my allegiance to him, but it makes me wanna say like, Jesus, I don't know. I don't know the best way to do this, um, how to follow you, let alone lead others to follow you, but here I am, like I'm, I'm still here, I'm still yours, so teach me, speak to me, lead me, otherwise I'm just gonna kinda be here and, and wait for you, you know? I have no idea if I'm describing just something that's unique to me or if you feel that way too. Um, Maybe I get a little extra spun up about it because it's my job to think about this and process it. Um, but if you feel a little bit like I feel, um, if you're picking up what I'm laying down, I would bring us to Jesus and to his word to us this evening. I genuinely feel like I've, I've desperately needed this this week and maybe, maybe you do too. So let's look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you, in a way that only you can do, allow the weight of those words of Jesus to just, in a beautiful way, just sit on our souls and on our hearts that we would feel how important those words are so that we, that we would be formed by them, that we would hear Jesus and listen to him and understand him, what he's saying here. I pray this in his name, amen. So in the previous passage, the Sadducees tried to get Jesus trapped up in a theological question about marriage and the resurrection um, and it didn't work. And the Pharisees hear about this and so now they kind of band together at a, in another attempt to mess with Jesus and to question him. The wording of them kind of getting together is a little bit like, it's meant to sound kind of like schemy and sinister, like they're, they're huddling up together, figuring out how to take a shot at Jesus again. So let's look at those verses. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. So the general school of thought amongst the rabbis and the smart people back then was that it wasn't appropriate to say that one commandment was more important than another. So they were trying to trap Jesus again into favoring one commandment or style of commandment and then being dismissive of others, so they're hoping that he would do something like that. Um, there was a common language that rabbis would use that would describe, describe certain laws as heavier or lighter. Jesus says this a little bit later in Matthew when he calls there's certain weightier matters of the law, I think that's in chapter 23. And so they had, they had a context for like evaluating that some were more important um, than others, but you couldn't be dismissive of them. And they were hoping that Jesus would be dismissive of some law or group of laws. Um, but he responds in this way in 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus replies by quoting a commandment from the book of Deuteronomy. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses four and five, and the passage is called the Shema. That word Shema, is the Hebrew, it's the first word in the original language of that verse, and it means to listen or to hear, and really I think it means to listen with the intent of following or obeying. So you're listening in so that you can follow an instruction. The Shema was a passage that every Israelite knew, memorized, and uh, recited daily in the Shema, it says to keep the words of it and the, the commandments surrounding it in Deuteronomy to keep them on your heart and on your mind always. When you're walking with your family, you should be talking about them and saying them. When you're sitting down, when you're getting up, anything like that, you're supposed to have them on your hands, on your forehead, and on your house. Many people do that literally to this day. This was an important passage to them, they knew it. It represented the importance of Scripture to Israel, at least in some ways. Um, and so it's a beautiful, beautiful commandment that Jesus goes to. And the command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. In Deuteronomy it says strength, Matthew says mind. Luke and Mark say something slightly different. It's not a big deal. We could, if, that, if you have a problem with the differences and how that commandment is described, we could talk about it after. There's good reasons for it. Um, but the idea, the main point, Jesus commands us, says the greatest commandment is to love God with everything you have every part of your being, with your whole self. William Barclay says, it must be a love that dominates our emotions, directs our thoughts, and is the dynamic of all our actions. So Jesus says this, that, is the first and greatest commandment. That is basically, um, he's saying it's the ultimate commandment. He's not describing two separate qualities, that it's like number one on a list and also the greatest. It's two words to describe the same idea. It is the main commandment, but then Jesus gives like a bonus commandment, sort of, or it's like, it's like the other side of the same coin in verse 39. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting a commandment from Leviticus 19, which in that context had primarily to do with Israel being commanded to love their brother and sister within Israel, but we know what Jesus says about our neighbors, that we're supposed to love all of our neighbors, which means that it's whoever is around us, including our enemies. So we get to bring that meaning to it as well. But the idea is that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When it says that it is second, it doesn't mean that it's less important. Mostly that it flows out of the first one. Like I said, there are kind of two, two sides of the same coin. The way that you can show your love for God is by loving others. Um, loving others the way that you would love yourself. Um, I don't have this quote on the screen, but Michael Wilkins says, in the same way that individuals are called to care for themselves responsibly, and to tune their lives to carry out God's will, they are to give themselves to others to care for them responsibly and help them attune their lives to carry out God's will. So now here is the, um, the reduction of complexity, the synthesis, the simplification of the whole Bible. In verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So when Jesus says law and prophets, that basically means the Bible the whole Bible. So they had these categories, law, prophets, and writings. Um, and that kind of summed up the whole, that was the whole Old Testament. Law meaning the first five books of the Bible, the prophets meaning most every other book of the Bible, and then the writings would be Psalms and Proverbs and some others. Um, essentially, it's a shorthand way of saying the Bible. Jesus is saying the whole Bible, your, their Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures hinged on or they hung on those two commandments, to love God and to love others every commandment in Leviticus, every story or instruction in Jeremiah or Isaiah or Daniel or Chronicles or Micah, they're all meant to point Israel to love God and to love their neighbor. And if you read the Old Testament with this in mind, if there was a way to like put this, these two commandments on as glasses and you read the Old Testament, you would see it. You would see God kind of procuring Israel's allegiance and loyalty to himself saying, love me, I'm your God, stay with me. And then also, what that means is you need to treat people as I treat them. You need to love people. While some of the laws in the Old Testament can seem archaic, outdated, uh, we have to compare um, what Israel was instructed to do with what other nations did at the time, and you'll find God being rather like, progressive, I guess, cultivating a people that were incredibly different than those around them. They were generous and hospitable and caring to everyone. Obviously, they did this very imperfectly, but it was um, God's intent for his people to be solely dedicated to him with their whole selves and then in doing so, loving those around them. And that's what Jesus says, summarizes the whole Bible. Um, We don't have a response of the Pharisees, if we're wondering why, why they didn't like retort or fight back, um, most theologians think it's because Jesus' answer was really good. <laughs> they didn't have a way to fight back. Um, these two, loving God and loving others, um, most theologians think that Jesus is referring to two kind of sides of the 10 Commandments. There was some of them that dealt with a person's relationship with God and how they were honoring to God, and then the others dealt with how people were honoring to one another. And Jesus was basically summarizing those two categories in these two commandments. So Jesus answered it well, and he summarized God's intent for his people then in the Old Testament and even today for us. So that's the the meat of the passage, and I'm just going to take a minute to offer a couple thoughts um, for us. We're going to think about what does it mean to love God, um, because we can say, great, that's simplified sort of. It says love God and love people, but what does that mean? Um, Also just ponder the importance of loving others and how serious that is for us as Jesus' followers. And then kind of circle back to the beginning and um, allow what Jesus has said to sink in and simplify and clarify what it means for us to be his followers. So the question, what does it mean to love God? Uh, What does the Bible mean when it says that? Uh, (laughs) that um, that we should feel affection for God, that we should be fond of him, that we should obey. We have a linguistics problem because the word love for us is really flexible. We use the same word for describing totally different scenarios like I love my wife, I also love McMiniman's Cajun tots. I love my children and I also love to play guitar. I'm using the same word and describing like vastly different kinds of relationships. My relationship with Tots is different than my relationship with my wife. Um, Beyond those categories, our love for God, I think is its own even, it's a separate kind of love. So I'm gonna say something that came into my mind today. I didn't copy it from someone, I don't say that as a brag, I say that as like a, if this is weird, I'm sorry, that's just my own brain. So here's how I'm thinking about what it means for us to love God. It is allegiance plus obedience plus affection. I think if we miss any one of these, we are missing out on the kind of love that God wants us to have for him. It's not just allegiance and it's not just obedience and it's certainly not just affection. It needs to be all three of these. So the first part is allegiance. There are a few different ways to read the opening line of the Shema, um, Deuteronomy 6.4. None of them are contradictory to one another, but there are some ways of understanding that verse that kind of bring out a different emphasis. So the NIV says, the, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I find that to be like, what is that? Is that like a heading? Is that a title? There's very, there's very little like verbal ideas except for it says the Lord is one. Um, the ESV says something similar um, There's other other translations, the Net Bible, the NET being one of them. Um, But the way that that makes the most sense to me to this that I think is um, honoring and true to the original language is something like, listen up, Israel. The Lord is our God and the Lord alone. Um, So that word for the Lord is one is echad and that can mean the number one, and it can also mean like a single, separate, solitary unit. And so I think this verse is meant to say, Israel, listen, the, you, Yahweh, the Lord, is our God. No, there are no, no other God is our God except Yahweh. I think that's what Deuteronomy 6.4 means. Our translations don't really bring that out very well, but I, I do think that's what it means. The intent is to establish who is master, who is the Lord here. Who does our allegiance and our loyalty belong to? And the answer is Yahweh. And so the command to love God with your whole self flows out of the fact that Yahweh is God and no one else is. So I think this is the first part of what it means to love God is that you have pledged allegiance. You have said he is Lord, he is king, he is master. So there's allegiance and then similar but maybe slightly different is obedience out of our assumed allegiance where we say who our king is, we obey and we're told to love God with all of our actions, with our whole self. That means that we show our allegiance to God, our love for God by giving him everything that we have by obeying with our heart and our soul and strength. That just means everything within us. Jesus says something sort of similar in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. So a person who loves God, who has pledged their loyalty, their allegiance to him, demonstrates this in obeying his commands. And then the last part is affection. It's not the least important, but it is, I think, the trickiest to understand the concept of having affection for God. Maybe, maybe you don't feel that way, but I just, I've, my head has spun for many years of like trying to understand like, how am I supposed to feel about God? I don't feel about anything the same way over a long period of time. What I mean is like my feelings about everything change, often. And it's uh, applied here. And so um, when we think of love, we often think about affection in our life. How do I feel about this person or this thing? And it is a dynamic a dynamic of our love for God, but not the end all be all. So if I ask you like, do you love God? And you don't in that moment feel like butterflies or warm fuzzies or something, you can still say, yes, I do love God. Um, It's a different kind of thing. It's not the affection of young love that is like full of an intoxicating rush. Um, I think, again, I'm just processing here with you, I think it's a a feeling that stems from our gratitude for what God has done. So for the people in Israel at the time of the, the OG Shema, God constantly brought them back to the fact that he rescued them from Egypt. That was like their defining moment where maybe even particularly when God um, wiped out the firstborn of all of Egypt and people put the blood of these goats and their lambs on their doorposts and the angel of the Lord passed over them. That would have been terrifying for them to experience like all this death around them and it was a for lack of a better phrase, a a bonding community forming experience for them to know like oh my word, we are like, we are separate from all these people around us and then they're chased through this ocean and defined together like I can't think of a more formational experience to go through Um, and God is constantly bringing them back to this is what I did for you, this is what I did for you, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and I think that was meant to stir up gratitude and love and affection for this one who rescued them. Um, I was thinking of this story today that like uh, in a much lesser way captures like the kind of, um, actually I'll I'll say two, captures the kind of like affection that maybe, it's an earthly way of saying the the affection that we can have for the Lord. So one, um, I'm just gonna tell the one, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) is a slightly sad story from my time in seminary. Mostly I had a great time in seminary, but there was this one time where I was in class with like 30 other pastors all from the Northwest, and it was in a particularly hard season in my life, and we, in seminary, were talking about that season in my life. It was just kind of the topic of the day. We were, we were talking about it, unpacking some stuff, and there was some guy who just, I don't know why what I said bothered him so much, but in front of all these people, he like raised his voice and just like laid into me and said some really hurtful things, and it was Awful, I remember just feeling like so embarrassed and ashamed, not that I had done anything wrong, but like, oh my gosh, why is this guy saying these things to me right now? It was awful and then immediately after that, there's another guy in the room, Uh, his name is Matt Porter and he's the pastor of Outward Church and he stood up and basically corrected that guy in a very, if you know Matt Porter, in a very Matt Porter way um, and defended me and stood up for me and kind of stood in the gap for me when I was feeling like, I am gonna leave this place and never come back. Um, And I will never forget it. It like, I sometimes cry when I think about it, I'm trying not to right now, but right now, today, if Matt Porter asked me to do something, uh, I would do anything I could to do it for him. Uh, He he purchased my loyalty and my allegiance by how he stood up for me in that moment. And so I, I remember what he did, where I was, and how he kind of brought me out of that terrible situation and now I'm like, pfft, I would would be there for that guy if he ever needed me and you guys probably have stories like that Um, but I kind of think that's maybe a small version of what should happen on a regular basis. I'm not saying that we can like make it happen every single moment, every single day but I think that's what should happen when we think about what is our affection for God supposed to be like not supposed to drum up the feeling of like Hollywood love for God. That's like cheap. Why would would God want that from us? I think he wants a reflective love that is aware of who he is and what he's done for us. Um, So I kind of think that's the affection part. And I will just tell you, I am so, so guilty of not cultivating this aspect of love for God. It is easy to go on in life without letting Your feelings and your emotions catch up with reality. And the reality is that every day is a gift that God has given me. Every breath is grace. And as great as it was for Matt Porter to deliver me from that mean man, uh, God has delivered me from something much worse than that. And it has changed my very life and affected every day of every moment of reality for me. Forgiven my many, many sins and given me the Holy Spirit to solely change me from the inside out, teaching me how to become like Jesus. And so love for God is not an emotion that we fall into, like we talk about in pop culture, you know, falling in or out of love, but it's a deeper and cultivated affection. I think it is one of the biggest lies in our culture that love, true love is like supposed to be effortless and magical. Um, that if you have to like work at it, fight for it, fight through it, that there's something not not good about it. I think that's probably one of the most pervasive and damaging lies. Um, Our love for God is something, our affection for God as part of the category of our love is something that we have to cultivate. Um, And so I think when you think about this simplification of like, my job is just to love God, um, I think that encompasses allegiance and obedience and affection. The next thing, we love God, and we love others, it's the other side of the coin of the greatest commandment. In our allegiance to God, our obedience to him, and in our affection for him, we should, in turn, love others with the same dedication that we love and take care of ourselves. I think this means thinking of others, treating others as God does, with self-sacrifice, with love and affection, seeking their good, treating people with the kind of justice that God does. And in doing this, we demonstrate, we prove our love for God. This concept is stated rather explicitly in 1 John 4.20. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. It's a thread throughout the whole Bible that God's love is supposed to come in, fill up, and spill out to others over and over again. If we are pledged to God, bound to Him, to obey Him, to be like Him, to experience gratitude when we think about what He's done in our lives, it should result in us thinking about others the way that God does and being instruments of His love uh, to them. I could try to come up with uh, my best guess on lists of categories of people that you should love in your life. (laughs) Like I, try, I could try to guess, but what I would rather do in a moment is just have you pray and say, Spirit, would you show me those people who you want me to love? So we'll do that in a minute. Last point, circling back to the beginning. If you ever get confused or overwhelmed like like I do about all that you could do for the Lord, sometimes I get so confused about all of it that I do nothing, which is just so backwards. Um, all the ways that we could try to grow, the trends and the fads of following Jesus in our time and our place, if you ever feel like you just need it simplified without being watered down, um, this is our goal. This is our goal for our whole lives. From day one of saying Jesus is Lord until you die, it is to love God and to love others. It is a a proper reduction, the lowest common denominator uh, making simple something that can feel complex throughout all the scriptures and life with Jesus. It does not do away with the importance of the Old Testament. Um, We should still read it and we should learn to love it. It doesn't diminish all the different practices and disciplines that we can and should do and should try at some point in our life as Jesus followers, but it gives us a framework for evaluating and trying ways to grow closer to Jesus. Is this thing? Is this book? Is this podcast? Is this rhythm? This practice? This reading plan? This goal? Is this going to help me love God? Am I doing it out of love for God? Or am I checking off some list? Am I searching just for kind of the latest, greatest, trendiest practice? In chapter 23, we're going to see Jesus like lay into the Pharisees for having everything Put together on the outside, but doing none of it out of love. And so I I fear that we sometimes do that. We're trying to put the right an an image of the right practices, hoping that it will like fix us. When the point is that we're supposed to be seeking God and seeking to love Him in what we do. So I have found this passage to be um, incredibly refreshing. A glass of ice water to a, a dry person, and uh, I'm hoping maybe it's provided some clarity, refreshment for you too, maybe it will as you ponder it this week. Um, Before we close, I wanna do one last thing. It might be cheesy, and if so, you can tell me and then we'll never do it again. But I wanna read the Shema together. Um, But we're gonna, as best as we can, say it in the way and the language that it has been said for thousands of years in Hebrew. So you'll just repeat a few words after me I'll tell you what we're saying when we say it. Um, One thing to note before we do it, um, many, if not all, uh, Jewish people do not pronounce the name of God, Yahweh. Um, Out of reverence, they believe it's a word that's like transcendent. We don't know how to pronounce it exactly, so we don't wanna pronounce it wrong because it's God's name. I understand it, I get it. I think it's okay to say Yahweh. We might be saying it wrong. Maybe he's like, oh my gosh, they're still saying it that way. But um, I don't know. The Hebrew Bible, when I was taught to read it, we say the word Adonai instead of Yahweh. Adonai means Lord. My Hebrew teacher asked us not to pronounce the name in his, in his class, and so when we read our Bibles, this is more of just like a force of habit. Um, I'm not saying Adonai because I think we shouldn't say Yahweh, but that's what we're gonna say um, when we read this together. So when we say Adonai, know that we're actually saying we mean the name of God, we mean Yahweh. Um, so let's, let's do this. We'll like do a couple words at a time and we'll tell you what what they mean. Shema Yisrael, one more time. Shema Yisrael, it means listen, Israel. Adonai Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord is our God. Adonai Echad, you can cough up some stuff here. Adonai Echad, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one. Okay, this sentence has too many words to say all at once, so I'm gonna split it up and then we'll explain it after. V'ahavta et Adonai. <laughs> we'll try it one more time. V'ahavta et Adonai. You shall love the Lord. And then your God is Elohecha. So, V'ahaftah et Adonai. Elohecha. The passion is just kind of, <laughs> ever, <laughs> stick with it. We're almost there. And that's, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. Okay. There's some repetition in the next one. We'll get it. Behol levavcha. Behol levavcha with all your heart. That's with all your soul. Last, with all your strength, with all your personhood, all of you. Okay, we're gonna do one line, each line one more time. Shema Yisrael. Listen, Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Eloheinu. The Lord is our God. Adonai Echad. Adonai. The Lord alone. V'ahafta et Adonai, Adonai. 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 Elohecha. And you shall love the Lord your God. V'chol l'vavcha. V'chol l'vavcha. V'chol l'vavcha. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your strength. Let's pray. Jesus, would you in this moment stir up our affection for you in a way that is free and clear from our culture's understanding of love? Um, as purely an emotion, but would you stir up a good and proper affection in our soul for you as our God and what you've done for us? Would you renew our allegiance to you? Would you help us to obey you? And Would you show us where and how we need to love others? As we pray now and as we sing, would spirit speak to us? You have our permission to show us where to love others. And if anyone else here needs it, Lord, would you simplify, help us wrap our minds around, not you, but what you want us to do, what it means to be your followers. Would you give us a healthy understanding that's not reductionistic, that's not too simplified or watered down, but helpfully clear that our job is to love you, with every part of our being. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.